Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Pity Africa's tax collectors. Loopholes abound, and plenty of people simply dodge taxes, believing, with some reason, that the well-connected can skip out too. But governments are concluding there's just too much potential revenue there to ignore. And what exactly is the right size for a team? Too few, and you lack ideological diversity. Too many, and you can't hear the boss at a meeting. We look into the sociology behind getting the number right. But first... After competing pressure from the world's two largest superpowers, Britain has made a contentious decision. Yesterday, its government announced that Huawei, a giant Chinese tech company, would be allowed a substantial but limited role in building the country's whizzy fifth-generation, or 5G, mobile phone networks. The decision will please Britain's network operators, who like Huawei's low prices and expertise. But it will upset America, Britain's closest ally, which worries that Huawei is under the influence of the Chinese government. It all comes at a sensitive time for the so-called special relationship between Britain and the U.S. On Friday, Britain will exit the European Union and then look to America for a favorable new trade deal. And the decision marks a split in five eyes, an electronic spying pact with its roots in the Second World War that comprises America, Britain, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. Australia has already followed America's lead and banned Huawei. Meanwhile, other countries, including Germany and Spain, must now decide whether to follow in Britain's footsteps. After much agonizing, the British government has decided that it will allow Huawei of China to supply kit for its 5G uh, telecoms network, but in a limited way, keeping it out of the core network and uh, limiting its market share to 35%. Daniel Franklin is our diplomatic editor. The core is the most sensitive bit of the system that has the most say in handling where the data go, as opposed to the periphery, which is reckoned to be less sensitive, although the distinction between the two can sometimes be a bit blurry. And why has America been so upset by this? America has been lobbying really hard to get Britain, as Australia, for example, has done, to block Huawei altogether because it sees Huawei as a a risk as potentially a company that could be used by the Chinese state to spy on pretty much anything it likes. And I think it plays into the uh, growing sense of China as a strategic rival for America. And here's a technology in which China is actually ahead. So it's particularly sensitive. It's really at the nexus of these twin worries of China as a rival and China as a country that is overtaking America in certain technologies of the future. 
Why has this been such a pointed question around 5G when, when the world is already covered with, uh, has been covered with 2G and 3G and 4G? Why, why is this such a, a, a flashpoint? 5G is really a step change in terms of telecoms infrastructure, and it's really a question of who controls the telecoms infrastructure of the future. And, and in other generations of, of this sort of equipment, China hasn't been out, of, out ahead. And the problem is that the rest of the market hasn't really caught up with China on 5G. There hasn't been a, a, a Western alternative that is as cheap and as good. And that's made it very difficult for those who want to press ahead with what is a crucial technology for competitiveness in, if you like, the new digital economy, to avoid the Chinese option because the others simply aren't as good and aren't as cheap, and it will be a little bit of time before competitors catch up. So there's an economic case for the decision, but what about the security case that America has been making? Well, I think Britain had several reasons for this. One was the merits of the case. Uh, Did they actually consider that it was... Uh, as great a risk as the Americans were claiming, and I think the answer to that among those uh, who looked at it very closely in the intelligence service and elsewhere was, no, they could manage this risk. Secondly, there is the China factor as well. Britain is very keen on not burning its bridges with China. It has uh, big trading ambitions with China, and this could have been taken by China had it been snubbed as a, a way to, or as an excuse to, Uh, take reprisals against Britain. And then I think there's a certain interest in Britain in not just to be seen to be bowing to pressure from America, especially at a time when the so-called special relationship is taking on such an importance as Britain leaves the European Union. Well, you might view the the decision yesterday as uh, a kind of a, a third way rather than bowing to China entirely or to America entirely. It says, well, we can use some of the kit in some of the network and that, in a, in a sense, keeps both parties happy. I think that was the effort, uh, and it may well uh, have worked to an extent. Uh, Boris Johnson, the prime minister, called President Trump and seems to, for now anyway, have smoothed things over. But there is a lot of unease in the American administration on Capitol Hill and indeed among quite a few conservatives in, in, in Mr. Johnson's own party. And so do you think that taking this middle ground will, will affect the special relationship between Britain and America? I mean, America has, has threatened before that it might restrict some of its intelligence sharing, for example. Well, uh, I think that's unlikely to, to happen because the intelligence sharing is absolutely crucial actually for both countries and both benefit from it. So unless there were real concerns that China was able to eavesdrop in these networks that are actually outside the kit that China is supplying... And I think the intelligence sharing will go on, but it could have some sort of backlash against the trade deal that Britain and America are going to be trying to negotiate. There's a lot of unease among congressmen and senators, so getting this through the American Congress eventually might be harder now than it was before. So if some of that tension remains, then how do you expect this decision to, to play out in the, in the shorter and the, the medium term? Well, in the short term, it's going to be much chewed over. This is Brexit week, uh, and it will feature... A lot of focus on the special relationship. In fact, Mike Pompeo, the American Secretary of State, is is in London now and due to meet Dominic Raab, his opposite number, as well as Boris Johnson. And tomorrow, Mr. Pompeo and Mr. Raab are going to have a public conversation about the future of the special relationship. And you can expect Huawei to feature heavily in that. But beyond that, in, in the longer term, I think it'll be seen as, as a key moment in 
the relationship between a Britain that no longer has the comfort in numbers that comes from the European Union but is more on its own and how it deals with the United States. And this suggests that it's prepared to take quite a clear-headed look at its own national interests and not just put America first just for the sake of it. And what about more widely? There are other countries in particular in the EU that have not yet made their decision as to how how much to allow Huawei into its 5G networks as they're rolled out. Do you suppose Britain's decision will influence them? I think it is likely to make it easier for other countries now to also go with Huawei at least up to a point uh, and not have an outright ban as Japan as well as Australia have done. So I think that's another thing that will rankle with the Americans that Britain of, of all countries, their most trusted ally, is allowing this uh, perhaps domino effect that it wouldn't really like to see. And, and what do you suppose Huawei itself and, and Chinese officials will have made of it, having you know lobbied themselves for, uh, for a decision in this direction? I think they'll be pleased. Uh, they'll, they'll be a bit concerned about the restrictions on the the market share and indeed over time it's possible that there's a bit of a backlash from that among conservatives in parliament trying to ratchet that down in future but broadly the avoidance of an outright ban i think will be seen by them as a as a victory daniel thank you very much for joining us thank you it's that time of the year Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Africa is a stressful place to be a tax collector. And you always have sleepless nights because you're always thinking about wherever... Yankuba Darbo is the top revenue official in the Gambia, where, as with much of the continent, attitudes to taxation are ambivalent. Because the ideal situation is that people should come who are supposed to pay their taxes voluntarily. But on the African context, it's difficult. Politicians across Africa are asking ever more of people like Mr. Darbo, and with good reason. The biggest hole in public coffers is not money squandered or stolen, but the revenue that's never collected in the first place. Governments in Africa, to put it simply, are just not collecting enough tax. Liam Taylor reports on Africa for The Economist and is based in Uganda. In Nigeria, which is got some of the lowest tax rates. The country which has 300 times as many people as Luxembourg, it, it collects less tax than Luxembourg. Another example, if you, if you look at Ethiopia, the tax revenues that are collected there, if you were to share them out equally, each citizen would just get around $80 a year at market exchange rates. So, so basically, governments have very little money to provide the services that their citizens need and demand. Um, if you were to go to the Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, the government spends so little per person on healthcare each year that that money wouldn't buy a copy of The Economist. And so how has it become a, a problem of this size, a continental-scale tax problem? So since the 1980s, really, uh, economic policy in Africa has been quite heavily influenced by the IMF and the World Bank. And part of that agenda has been slashing trade taxes, which used to be 
one of the largest sources of income for African governments. Um, at the same time, there's been reductions in top rates of personal income tax, um, corporation tax. There has been new kinds of taxes, so VAT is increasingly popular across the continent, but the result is, is not been a huge surge in, in overall tax take. And in fact, over half of tax revenues uh, in Africa now come from taxes on goods and services, things like VAT. Of course, those, those taxes are aggressive, and the poor end up paying more as a proportion of their income, and they're often quite unpopular as well. But what kind of, of, of rates of tax are we talking about here? Is, is it what we would expect for the size of, of these economies? So although tax rates, like I say, have, have been falling, at least for direct taxation, they're still higher than in many other parts of the world. But the problem you have is that there are so many loopholes within that that lots of people and governments aren't actually paying them. One thing which creates loopholes is tax treaties, which are treaties signed between governments they originally intended for the noble purpose of eliminating double taxation. But in practice, what often happens is there are a way for multinational corporations to limit taxation on, on cross-border income, things like royalties, service fees, and so on. Some analysis by the IMF suggests that African countries which sign tax treaties with Mauritius don't get any extra investment, but lose out by about 15% of their corporate tax revenue on average. A second problem is that governments grant very generous exemptions, partly to try and lure investment. Some of those exemptions are, are sensible policies, but lots of them, there's not really any evidence base to suggest that they're, they're achieving what they set out to do. And Estimates are that up to 40% of revenues in some cases that governments could be collecting, they're foregoing through these kind of exemptions. So if the tax rates are falling and a lot of people are finding ways to get around them anyway, who's paying the tax that is coming in? So the complaint that comes from big business is that they are the ones who are footing the bill. There's some evidence that's right. The, the African Tax Administration Forum, which is a club of tax collectors, they estimate that among their member countries, about 6% of taxpaying firms are paying almost 80% of total tax receipts. But it's a bit more complicated than that because, for example, some analysis of effective tax rates in Ethiopia suggests that actually the smallest firms are paying the highest effective rates. And in fact, when you talk to ordinary people in, in many countries, they say, look, the system is rigged. Survey results show that over half of Africans consider it very likely that rich people could use uh, personal connections or pay a bribe in order to dodge taxes. There was a study published by the International Centre for Tax and Development. They work with Ugandan tax collectors to examine records for 71 government officials in 2013-14. And they found that just one of those officials had paid any individual taxes. And so... Although it's, it's true that, that big firms are paying a significant proportion of the bill, it's also the case that wealthy individuals and large corporations are escaping much of what they should probably be paying. So it seems like there's a lot of, of contributing factors here, not, not least the sort of good old-fashioned tax avoidance business. But, I mean, how, how to fix it if it's a continental-scale problem? How, what's the continental-scale fix? Well, of course, it's a continental scale problem, but in 54 different countries. So it would be very different from country to country. But it, broadly speaking, the first thing is a, a package of quite boring technocratic reforms. It's things like strengthening your IT systems, making sure taxpayers have identification numbers, 
creating special units to focus on certain classes of taxpayers like wealthy individuals or big business. So in Uganda, for example, the tax authority here has has done that. They focused more on those wealthy individuals who weren't paying their tax. When they drew up a list of 117 very rich people and started meeting them, they found that at the beginning, only 13% of those were filing tax returns. By the end, 78% of them were. In fact, one pastor started preaching to his congregation about the importance of paying tax. So those kind of tax administration reforms are the first part of the picture. The second part is to reassess tax policy. So going back to those tax treaties, some countries have started renegotiating them. Some countries have also started thinking afresh about some of the exemptions that they're giving to foreign investors. And so if these countries did that and uh, did the, the, the boring stuff and the obvious stuff and the bureaucratic stuff, how, how much more money could they collect? And that's a very difficult question to know for sure. But, but one way of thinking about it is the IMF's approach, which is to look at things such as how rich countries are, how open they are to trade, governance, inequality, throw all these variables into a model and then try and estimate how much those countries could be collecting. And when you do that, the IMF estimates that most sub-Saharan African countries could increase their revenues by about 3 to 5% of GDP. That might not sound like much, but that's more than they're currently receiving in foreign aid. And there is examples of countries which, which have started to show increases in their revenues to GDP ratios. The challenge is to sustain that over the long term. Liam, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. As much as I'd like to take all the credit for how the intelligence sounds, it's not just me and three guests behind a microphone every weekday. The show's producers make things happen behind the scenes. The other producers and I help make the stories and edit them afterwards. Our sound engineer ensures that I sound great. I make sure the bassy tones and the beautiful crystal clear highs come through in the mix. And, of course, our editor keeps the show from going off the editorial rails. I make sure the right stories go on the show every day. Having a capable team around you can really help get the job done. Philip Coggan writes The Economist's Bartleby column on work and management. But many companies grapple with the question of the optimal size of a team. What is it? And how do you go about answering that kind of question? I think a lot of trial and error goes into it that over time we've evolved uh, various forms of team that point to certain sizes being useful. Over a very long time, for example, we seem to have decided that very large organizations can be difficult to handle. And the explanation for this may well be that there's only a certain number of relationships that we can usually cope with. And once the team gets too large, you don't recognize everybody, you have to have a much more formal structure and you kind of lose the camaraderie that exists with a small team. But if you have too small a team, then the problem is that you don't have the expertise needed to do the job. So you need this sort of Goldilocks position between too small a team without the expertise and too large a team where it's difficult to control. And what's that number or how do you find it? There's a range of numbers that is suggested by Professor Robin Dunbar of Oxford University, and he's been studying human society and also primate society. 
Those numbers are 5, 15, 50, and 150. From the point of view of very close friends, the kind of people you would have a shoulder to cry on, then you're talking about five. A broader group of good friends that you might be going for a drink with on a regular basis, you're talking about 15. Reasonable friends, Christmas card, someone you might see once a year or something, 50. And then acquaintances, 150. And when you talk about in the corporate sense, if you have a meeting where you need to decide something, you don't want 15 people, really, you need five. But if you have a meeting where you want to brainstorm about ideas and five may well be too limited, and you're talking about 15. And so how is it that Robin Dunbar came up with these numbers? Well, he studied historical sizes of teams and companies. So if you go back to military forces, which have had sort of thousands of years to work this out by trial and error, one of the earliest examples best known is the Roman centurion, the 100 people, 80 soldiers, 20 support staff. And even now, army units tend into the 120 or 180 level, depending on whether you're the UK or the US. But if you look at elite special forces, these are the people you're going out on patrol with, you know, you have to trust each person intimately with your life, then they tend to be around the five level. So again, it depends what you need. If you need a sizable team, the 150 level, five when you need a really small group. And so all of this translates quite neatly to to the business case. Yes. Startups have this wonderful sort of camaraderie when they begin. You start with a very few people, the five or so, and then you can build it up and maintain that camaraderie because you know everybody as they come into the team. But as the company grows, you start to lose it. You start not to know all the names of people. And there was a nice example uh, coming from Netflix where they talked about the stand on a chair number. If the boss stands on a chair, can aggress the crowd, all the staff, and people stop being able to hear them because they're too far back, then you've reached a size where perhaps it's got too big and you kind of lose that initial camaraderie. And there's an interesting example that Dunbar found from religious foundations, the Hutterites. They split up their groups once they'd passed 150. And their rationale was, it's possible to govern a group of below that number with peer pressure. Once you get above it, then you need kind of the equivalent of a police force. And if you think about it in company terms, that's what happens. You start getting HR staff, you start getting divisions, you start getting middle managers once you get above a certain level. And some things are gained from that, but some things are lost as well. So wait a minute, how does this figure in when you're a columnist? You are a law unto yourself. Not entirely. No man is an economic island. And I have people who edit my copy and take out all the jokes that don't work and some of the jokes that do work. People who fact check the copy and make sure I don't say something stupid. My colleagues who suggest ideas to me in meetings, which are extremely useful. So I could not be a columnist on my own. I require the team of The Economist to help me. Not to mention the colleagues who turn these things into an audio form. Absolutely. Philip, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. But speaking of talented and supportive teams, let me take this opportunity to thank mine, because today marks a year since The Intelligence launched. Happy anniversary, then, to our editor, Marguerite Howell, senior producers Chris Impey and Hannah Mourinho, producers Stevie Hertz and William Warren, our social audiences producer, Laura Clark, and our unflappable sound engineer, Daniel Lloyd Evans. We'll all see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow. 